you. Thank you for making the choice to be here tonight. And I hope the things that we study tonight will be beneficial to you, but we've, we've already done well in being here. I hope, as we've sung, that we've drawn nearer to Christ and nearer to the cross, and that our enthusiasm for God, our fire for Him, uh, will burn brightly in us as we go back into the world this week. Uh, we'll be in Second Kings chapter, or First Kings chapter two, excuse me, First Kings chapter two. Uh, I hope you've been following along in our daily uh, Bible readings as a congregation. That's so helpful. Um, I've I've really enjoyed those. Um, I think the readings are really well put together uh, because uh, I help put them together, right? Um, no, the w- there's some really hard decisions that have to be made in deciding what's going to be read and what's not going to be read. Um, and even then, with, with having five days of readings, you get to your Bible class, and you're like, oh man, there's so many cool things that I wish I could teach on that we don't have time to teach on. And sometimes, because of the restraints of the, the length of readings that we're trying to keep it to, sometimes it doesn't even make it into the reading, much less to the Bible class. And, and one of the things that was left on the cutting room floor, as they say, is 1 Kings chapter 2. And what 1 Kings chapter 2 uh, really is are David's last words. The last words of David the father to his son Solomon. As Solomon is taking the throne and as David knows he's about to die, he has some last words of encouragement and wisdom and knowledge to pass on to him. And while we see David's dying advice as a father, his advice is not on how to be a father, which... Frankly, he was probably ill-fitted to give in many ways, but it was advice on how to be a man, a man who would rule. And so let's read together, if you would, in 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the first ten verses of this chapter together. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged his Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and whatever, wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, and he quotes from the promises made to David in Second um, Samuel chapter 7, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, And with all their soul, he said, God said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Jeriah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood, shed the blood of war in peacetime, and he put the blood of war on his belt, that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. That's something to lay on your son on your deathbed, isn't it? But let's keep going. Verse 7. But show kindness to the sons of Barzalei, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see... You have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite from uh, Berharum, who cursed me with a malicious curse on the day when I went to Mahanim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, 
I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and know what ought to be done to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. It's interesting, isn't it? These are the words that David chooses to give his son. In recent tradition, Christendom has mostly defined what it means to be a man in terms of two relationships, being a husband and being a father. And while we celebrate both of those things, and both of those things are obviously important in our Christian life, and Father's Day is next Sunday and all of those sorts of things, being a man does not start there. All men should be and become men of God before becoming, if they ever become, husbands or fathers. And even more, we see great men in the Bible who were either, number one, pretty terrible husbands and fathers like David and Samuel and Lot and others. Or number two, weren't husbands or fathers at all like Paul and most notably Jesus, the perfect man. So what does it mean to be a man before or outside of those relationships? For Solomon, who at this time was a young man of probably around 20 years old, maybe 19, maybe 21, but right around there, he's now faced with ruling the people of God. And what is it that he needs to do to fulfill this part of manhood? Well, notice four things with me in the text. And it's not just David's words that I want us to focus on. David's words have what I would judge to be some good and bad in them. But Solomon's reaction to those words really tells us a lot about who God calls us to be. So, a godly man, as we see it in this text in 1 Kings chapter 2. Number one, a godly man respects his elders, but he doesn't blindly follow what they tell him to do. Solomon seemingly loved and respected his father, David. Uh, we studied in Bible class from 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Turn over there, if you would, just a page over in your Bible. How is it that Solomon describes his father, David? Uh, Tim Beeman pointed this out to me after Bible class. And rare is the occasion when I get to uh, use something that somebody says to me after Bible class right away in, in the Sunday evening sermon. But that's the case tonight. In 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 6, here's how Solomon describes his father. You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. He calls David by the moniker that that God most often, most often calls David, my servant. He calls him your servant, David, my father. And how does he describe David's life? He walked before you in truth, in rightness, righteousness, and in uprightness of heart. Well, that's true of David, um, but certainly that's an incomplete picture of all David did and all David was. But what a wonderful thing for a son to say about his father. And again, it was true of David, but was that all that David was? Even in terms of how it impacted Solomon's life. We think about Solomon. He lived and only lived in that time where David was facing the consequences of his sin against God and Uriah and Bathsheba and everything 
involved with that. You think about David not being the man that he was and the father that he should have been, and we talked about that in Bible class a a couple of weeks ago. Solomon was raised during all of those years. Solomon had to deal with all of the internal strife in his family. And he's got one half-sibling that is raping another half-sibling. He's got got his other brothers killing other brothers going down the line. And he's kind of down at the end in terms of birth. But but what happened a lot of times is you just wiped out all the people who might have been heirs to the throne if you wanted to take the throne yourself. He had to deal with this idea of fleeing when Absalom came. It's likely that Solomon would have been there in Jerusalem and and he would have remembered having to flee because here his brother is coming to take over the throne. And if you stop and think about Solomon's childhood, here he is, 20 years old, 19 years old. In our culture, that's about when somebody's leaving home and they're really on their own, those sorts of things, right? He could have looked back on his childhood in a lot of different ways. He could have looked back on it with bitterness and resentment. He could have looked at David and pointed out all of his flaws. And he could have been bitter about the way he was raised. But that's not where he chose to focus. When he describes his father to God, he describes him in these good terms. And we think about David... And and I think in some ways his advice to Solomon in 1 Kings 2 is a microcosm of his life. There are seven verses of great wisdom and great faith. And then two verses at the end, verses 8 and 9, that to me read very much like petty foolishness. Getting around a vow that he had made not to take the life of Shimei, and he's going to get around that vow that he made to the Lord by getting Solomon to do his dirty work for him. And so what is it that we see that Solomon does? Well, Solomon respects and follows what David says to do and almost all that he instructs him here. But in regard to Shimei in those last two verses, what he does is he gives Shimei another chance. He doesn't kill him as David told him to do, as he says so eloquently, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Instead, what is it that Solomon does? Turn over later in the second chapter, 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 36. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you will surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head, not on the hands of Solomon or on David, but on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, the saying is good, as my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now, Shimei proved his foolishness later on and got himself killed anyway, but Solomon knew and acted in such a way that he was going to err err on the side of mercy even if David advised him otherwise. And so let me speak to all of us as we think about this idea. And this is not just for a godly man, of course, though we're talking about Solomon, a man. This is is for all of us who aspire to be godly. We need to respect our elders, but at the same time know that they are fallible and that they can be wrong and we don't blindly follow. And when I say elders, I'm not just 
talking about those who serve in that formal capacity, of course, but that would include those who are older than us, those who have paved the way for us, our, our parents and grandparents. And they aren't perfect. Um, kids, if that's a surprise to you, well, surprise. Your parents aren't perfect. And we shouldn't blindly follow them when we become adults. But may I humbly suggest that we also shouldn't let a few mistakes that they make blind us to their goodness and what they have done for us. I don't think, uh, I don't think you fully realize um, what Jesus says about judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you use it will be judged back to you. You don't fully realize that in terms of this point until you become a parent yourself. And you're like, you know what? My parents did a pretty good job. Like, I feel pretty good about that because you realize how hard it is. And for almost all of the young people here, at least going by appearances and what I know, your parents are doing the very best that they can to raise you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I think Solomon balances this so well with respect for his father, pointing out the good qualities that his father had, but at the same time not going down this road of revenge uh, that was really probably against the will of God. So, by way of application, young people, here's what I want you to encourage you to do. I want you to write down ten things you're grateful that your parents have done for you and give it to them. That's an encouragement to them, but it's also a reminder to you um, that you need to respect them even though they make mistakes. The second thing that we see, I believe, in, in this text is that a godly man exercises true strength. And that true strength is found in meekness and in justice. If we go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, we see in verse 2, Be strong, David says. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. This is one of three times he uses that idea of being a man in these verses. He tells him to be strong, but what is strength, really? Well, for Solomon, it was found, at least in part, in giving second chances and showing mercy. He was willing to judge when necessary. Uh, take Shimei again, for example. We were there in 1 Kings chapter 2, and we read down through th verse 38. Solomon gives him this second chance, right? He's basically placing him uh, not in house arrest, but city arrest, right? He says, you stay in Jerusalem, everything's going to be fine. You leave Jerusalem, your, your blood is on your own head. And Shimei says, that sounds great. He probably thought he was going to get killed. So he said, yeah, that sounds really good. Well, what does he do? Um, he foolishly goes after some runaway slaves. Solomon hears about it. And Solomon calls him before him. Uh, in verse 42, Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? And the king said moreover to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But, Solomon, but King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And we see that Shimei, this man, is ultimately executed for the things that he has done. His true colors came out, 
but only after Solomon gave him this second chance. The same thing happens with Adonijah, Solomon's older brother who made a play for the throne. And if we go back to the first chapter, 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, this did come from our reading from this past week. In 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 46, um, after David uh, and Nathan and Zadok the priest, they, they put Solomon in as king. And so in verse 46, somebody goes to the party that Adonijah was having and says, uh-oh, looks like you're not going to be king after all. Verse 46, also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom, and moreover the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, may God make the name of Solomon better than your name. May he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king bowed himself on the bed. The so-called king, he realizes the pickle that he's in. Also the king thus said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose and each one went his way. You can almost imagine them silently leaving the party until it's just Adonijah and a few others. Now Adonijah, verse 50, was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar, and he came and fell down before King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, Go to your house. This shows great restraint from Solomon. He would have been well within his rights, certainly from a physical and carnal perspective, to put Adonijah to death. It would have been the best thing for the kingdom from a physical standpoint to eliminate this usurper to the throne. But instead, he gives him the chance to be a worthy man and tells him to go to his house. And again, his true colors came out as well. He makes another play for the throne. He's going to try and, uh, and get one of David's old concubines or, or handmaidens to be his wife. Uh, again, trying to put himself into this position of power. But it's interesting to me that, that Solomon in both of these cases, he exercises restraint and forgiveness and gives this person another opportunity to do what's right. For the man of God... It is the strength to do what is right instead of returning in kind that is often what is required of us. In both of these cases, returning in kind meant that Solomon would have just killed him. That's not what he did. And so too for us, anger and bitterness, being sinned against, spoken evil of, and so forth, we have to rise above all that. We're strong enough not to return in kind even if we have the power to do so. Solomon could have killed them both, but instead he gives them another chance. He controlled his strength. He controlled his strength, not his weakness. And oftentimes that's what's required of us as men, to control not just our weaknesses, but to control our strengths, to control our power. I want you to think about Jesus as he was tempted in the wilderness. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Um, we're not going to read much there, but I want you to have it before you. 
You remember the, the three temptations that the devil used there in the wilderness? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He tells him, if you are, if you truly are the Son of God, verse 3, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He tempts him again and says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down off this pinnacle of the temple. And he quotes scripture to him and says, God's going to take care of you. The angels aren't going to allow your foot to dash against a stone. And Jesus answers again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then he takes him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And boy, it was a high mountain because he could see all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you'll just fall down and worship me, all this I will give to you. And he says, away with you, Satan, verse 10, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. To what is the devil appealing? Yes, I know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. But why didn't he parade a woman in front of Jesus, for example? Why didn't he do that? You know what all three of these temptations have in common? They are appealing not to Jesus' weakness, at least not primarily, but to Jesus' strength. That Jesus has the power to turn those stones into bread. That Jesus has a special position where He is protected by God until He could fulfill His purpose. And Jesus would have all power and authority, and so the devil offers Him a shortcut to that. The temptation for Jesus was to lose control of His strength and use that strength and power given to Him that was His own for selfish and carnal means. The devil was tempting Jesus to abuse his power and his strength, not his weakness. And so too with Solomon. Solomon showed restraint with his strength, and so should we. As king, he could have done what he wanted, but he had the strength to show meekness in that time. And it's no wonder that Jesus says what he does at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Strength under control is what meekness is, and that's who inherits the earth. That's who becomes a blessed leader in the kingdom of God. And so meekness is what we must have. But meekness also includes the strength to stand up for what is right against those who are wrong, that we have a strong sense of right and wrong and justice. Why, why do you think that that it would have been right for him to kill Joab, which he did. And he killed Joab even though Joab was holding on to the horns of the altar just like uh, his brother. But why did he kill Joab but not these other two men? Because it was the just thing to do. Joab had shed innocent blood. Joab was a bully. And we must stand up for the weak um, when they are bullied. We must speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. In Solomon's case, he's speaking for the dead, right? He's defending those kinds of people. And so too for us, we must balance this idea of forgiveness and justice in meekness. As men, we are called to be strong. We are called to do hard things. We must have the strength to do those things. Maybe that's in terms of the daily things that we must do. Um, I know that this, again, 
Uh, We're not talking strictly about marriage and fathers and husbands here, but think about marriage for just a second. Uh, I want you to imagine, um, and all you who are unmarried can imagine this same scenario, I I want you to imagine that you're laying in bed with your wife, men, and there's some noise and she shakes you awake and she says, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Uh, Who in here has had that experience? Anybody? Okay. All right. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And you say, oh, it's nothing. Go to sleep, you know. Did you hear it again? I think I heard it again, right? I heard it again. Well, what if you would say, as a husband, why don't you go check on it? I'm going to hide under the covers. You, you go check on that, right? You go check on that. And, and maybe, I, I've done this one, there's nothing there, all the doors are locked, don't worry about it, go back to sleep. And then Stephanie says, I'm going to go check on it. I'm like, no, you're not! Ah, I got it, I got it, I'm going to go check on it, Right? Well, that's strength. That's strength to do what needs to be done. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm going to go check on the strange noises, right? But then maybe if we apply it to a slightly different scenario, um, and the baby cries for the 900th time in the night, do we make that same plea? I've got it, I've got it, don't worry about it. Or do we roll back over again? For the 900th time. Stephanie, I thought I did pretty well on that, but I don't think I did as well as I thought I did. Uh, Stephanie has a little phrase that she says all the time. She says, I don't want to sleep like a baby. I just want to sleep like a husband. (laughs) But we need to exercise true strength. And sometimes that's in doing the daily things that need to be done in our families. And yes, it's putting on the Christmas lights and taking out the trash, but it's far more than that. Sometimes we as husbands and fathers, we have to be the bad guy. We have to have strength to be that in regard to, we're going to do this Bible study even though everybody else is upset and doesn't want to do it. No, I have to have the strength and meekness to say we are going to study because this is important. If I see my wife or my daughter about to leave the house a modestly dressed, I need to have the strength in meekness to say that, that that's not going to work. I love you too much to let you leave the house like that. In regard to church attendance, we as fathers, as leaders of our home, need to be the ones who say, no, we do need to be there. And we need to make the time to be there. And maybe the, the retort is, well, why do we always have to be the bad guy? Well, because you're the man. And you're supposed to have the strength to do what needs to be done. And maybe it's applied in other areas of our life. Stand up at work and say, I'm not going to do that, it's wrong. Stand up at school and say, hey, leave that person alone. They didn't do anything to you. Maybe that means you have to make yourself the target to be strong and control that strength. As men, we need to know what needs to be done and then exercise the true strength and meekness and justice to do that thing. A godly man exercises that as Solomon did. And then number three, a godly man humbly seeks wisdom in order to lead. We know uh, one of the caricatures that's out there of a carnal or fleshly man, the man who doesn't read instructions or ask for directions. And why is a caricature what a character is? Because it is an exaggeration of something that's kind of true, right? And there's a stubbornness there sometimes. That's the picture of a man for some. And why is that? 
Why do we actually do that sometimes? Why do we not ask for directions? Why do we insist on our own way sometimes? Uh, um, I was going to tell another story to tell on myself, but I don't think I can do it. I've already done too much telling on myself. Why do we insist on those things? I think because we want to lead, because we want them to be the one who knows what to do when everyone is looking at us. But when it gets right down to it, how dumb and stubborn is it to keep going when we don't know where we're going? That's not strength, that's stupidity. And we need to have the confidence that comes from knowing what we're doing because it's approved by God. Not false bravado, but true strength and confidence. What did Solomon need to be a man? He needed wisdom from God. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 2, David, one of the very last things that he says in verse 9, he says, you are a wise man. But Solomon didn't feel that way. He didn't feel like he was wise, and he didn't really feel like that he was a man. In 1 Kings chapter 3, again that we studied this morning, in verse 7, here's the reality of how Solomon felt about himself. He said, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. I don't have the wisdom. I don't feel like the man who has it all figured out. And so what did he do? He had the wisdom to ask for wisdom. Starting there in verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. This is important. This impacts a lot of people. Therefore give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Well, Solomon could, because he asked God for the right thing. He asked Him for wisdom. Where did Solomon get that idea to ask for wisdom? Just come to him. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Yes, David was not a good father in some ways, but in others he was. Proverbs chapter 4, let's read uh, the first nine verses together. This is Solomon speaking. And Solomon says, Hear my children the instruction of a father. And give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son. Now he's thinking back to David. Tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. He, David, also taught me and said to me. And then he quotes what his father David said to him. Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her wisdom and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. And she will bring you honor. Then you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. And we often say, rightfully so, that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, told us that wisdom is the principal thing, but he was quoting from his father David when he said that. And so he had enough teaching, however imperfect it was, to know that he needed wisdom from God, 
And he had enough humility to ask for that wisdom. Solomon listened to David and listened to God in seeking wisdom to lead. And so because of that, he had humility that led to confidence. Humility leads to wisdom and wisdom leads to confidence. And isn't that amazing? To act in confidence, to do what needs to be done starts with our humility. To know that we don't always know the right way. It is false confidence without real wisdom that is the bravado that always thinks we know what is right even when we don't. And deep down, we know that we don't. Sometimes what is required of us is to flee. Like the man of God in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we're told to flee youthful lust. We have to flee after those sinful things. And at the same time, we need to pursue some things. Pursue what is right. Pursue what is good. And it's tough to know sometimes when to flee and when to pursue. But God can tell us And God can give us wisdom. Then finally, a godly man, as we think about it from uh, 1 Kings, a godly man has purpose in his life. For Solomon, uh, what was his big project? What was his big purpose in life? And and in fact, um, it was prophesied that he was going to do this before he was even born. It was to build the temple. We're going to study that next week. Do you ever notice how well things went in Solomon's life until after he built the temple? Things only started going downhill seriously in a spiritual way for Solomon after the completion of the temple. In the progression of the text, that's when Solomon's heart went after foreign wives. Why did he do that? Why did he go after these foreign wives in that way? Um, There are a number of motivations. Lust is number one on the list, right? This is a a harem that we're talking about here. Uh, I had a discussion with somebody um, after Bible class this morning. Maybe loneliness was part of the equation there. Uh, Maybe it was just power. You know, he, he could, and so he did. But may I suggest this evening, maybe part of the problem was there was a lack of purpose there. When we read first about the first man, Adam, After God creating Adam in the image of God, where did the Godhead put man and what did he have him doing? God took the man and put him in the garden to tend it and keep it. Man from the very beginning always had a purpose. He was to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Men, are we bored? Not from a lack of work, maybe we're tired and worn out from that, but from a lack of real purpose. Drive, a higher calling, a noble aim, pressing toward the goal. Because God has a purpose for us. We live in a time and in a place in America where our needs are wonderfully provided for, and so we fill our lives with entertainment and distraction. And maybe it's not, you know... 300 wives and, or 700 wives and 300 concubines kind of distraction. But maybe it's a similar idea. Entertainment has become the purpose for living for so many people. Um, I had some neighbors one time, and it was, it was like an accumulation, right? They bought this house, and then they bought a boat, and then they bought the camper, and then they bought the truck to, to haul the camper, uh, and then they bought the toys to go behind it. And uh, like it was great for me because I was a single guy next door to them, and I got to uh, enjoy some of the benefits of all of those things. 
Um, but they were both working and working hard, but all that work was for these things that they could have. And so maybe that's what we do. We work for the new boat, or we work for the weekend, or the next vacation, or maybe we live for hunting season, or we get up early to go play golf or to go fishing. There's nothing wrong with those things, all the things that I've listed. You heard golf was on the list, right? Nothing wrong with those things. But if that's what our purpose is, what a shallow, fleeting, vain purpose in life. To entertain ourselves with whatever it might be. We need to see what our God-given purpose is. And we see this emphasis on purpose in Jesus himself. Um, Turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would. Uh, This is our last verse to which we'll turn. And then uh, the lesson is yours to consider, do with what you will. Let's start there in verse 40. Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to be to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Uh, any parent who's ever left a kid at church, the church building knows what happened here, right? So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son... Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why? Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statements which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. And men. Twelve years old, under the Jewish system, he's becoming a man at this time. And Jesus, even at this early age, he knew what? He knew his purpose. He knew his father's business and he knew he must be about it. Jesus is becoming a man physically in this text, growing so that he might fulfill his God-given purpose and role. And Jesus, we assume, became a carpenter because that was the family business. But his purpose was not in building tables. His purpose was found in his heavenly Father's will. It is a spiritual purpose that we must all have. Maybe not building a temple. But what is it? Do you know? If you can't answer that question... If you can't answer the question of what your spiritual purpose is, why you're taking up space and and breathing oxygen on this earth, you need to figure it out. Because none of us can be spiritually mature until we know and seek to accomplish the purposes that God has for us. 
And maybe those purposes change somewhat from season to season in our lives. But if we are drifting aimlessly, then how can we be the godly men and women that God has called us to be? How can I use my talents and abilities to serve in His kingdom? That's what we need to figure out. Um, The best men I've ever known, I've known some good ones. The best men I've ever known had no question about this fourth point. They knew who they were. They knew where they were going. They knew how they were going to get there. And they knew what they were supposed to be doing while on this earth. I said all that in the past tense, didn't I? I'm thinking of my granddad. And what he carried around in his wallet. I shared with the young people in our graduation sermon. Always let spirituality have the upper hand and you will never go wrong. He was about his father's business. And there are so many good men and women in this congregation tonight who are about their father's business. God has a purpose for you. Are you fulfilling it? I pray that we learn from the life of Solomon, the life of David, and the last words of a father to his son. That we need to be those who are respectful of those who are older than us, but we don't blindly follow anyone except God. We exercise true strength and meekness and justice. We humbly seek the wisdom to lead and to follow as we should. And we know what our purpose in life is, and we are seeking daily to fulfill it. If we can help you with that even this evening, whether that's coming to Christ and putting Him on in baptism or helping you as a brother and sister in Christ to get back on the road to fulfilling your purpose, there's nothing that we would love more. And we'll pray for you and pray with you. All you have to do is come while together we stand and while we sing.